The Mac Observer's Mac Geek Ab number 291 for Tuesday, October 12th, 2010. Greetings, folks, and welcome to the Mac Observer's Mac Geek Ab, the podcast where you write the agenda. Well, within reason, of course. We answer your questions, we share your Mac tips, and uh, we try to do everything we can to enhance and further your Mac knowledge. From Durham, New Hampshire, I am Dave Hamilton. Wow, that's a good lead-in. I like that. I like that. How, do you spend some time on that? Mm-hmm. Excellent. Excellent. I, th- I thought about it in the shower earlier. I'll have to think one up, too. Yeah. Probably sound the same. Anyways, yes, I'm here in uh, Fairfield, Connecticut. And you are John Braun. The one, the only F F Braun. Yeah, we all know what the F stands for. Uh, I don't. I just find it easier to find my stuff online by using the middle initial. That's right. That's right. All right. Where are we starting here, John? You know what I want to do? Just to mix things up a little bit, I want to talk about our first sponsor here, which is Barebones. Barebones software at barebones.com. And the piece of software of theirs that we are talking about for their sponsorship today is Yojimbo, which is very easy for me to talk about because it is the software that I use to prep Mac Geek Geb and keep our agenda, your agenda, all built and in sync here. Yojimbo is a data collect, a, a, a data collection and organization tool. What you do is you start. And it's got a three pane view, similar to Mac OS X's mail application. Very familiar view. On the left side are what's called collections. And you can have a collection. Of course, I have one for Mac Geek Gab. I have another one for Mac Observer. I have one for personal. I have one for tech tips. I have one for recipes. And I can throw things into these collections. And when I say things, by that, I mean text uh, snippets. I can throw PDFs in, I can throw images in, I can throw audio files in, and I can have files in multiple collections at the same time. And then when I click on a collection at the top, just like I would in mail, where I would see my messages, I see the names of the documents. And then if I click on them, of course, in the in the bottom pane, I see the actual document. The beautiful part of this is all this data is, you know, unrelated in form, but related in function. And Yojimbo lets me pull all that together. It then syncs with .Mac, which is really, really cool. Uh, And if I pull a web clipping in, not only does it save the clipping, but it saves the URL that it came from, so I can bounce back to that if I ever want to see it. This is Yojimbo, of course, from Barebones Software. You can get it at barebones.com, and I highly encourage you to go check it out. You download it for free to check it out, and then it's 39 bucks for an individual license, uh, 29 bucks for educational licenses. And of course, this is all at barebones.com. And with that, John, I think it's time to, uh, to talk to Dave. Dave has an interesting issue. He says, my wife often rents or borrows kids DVDs from the library or video store. And the kids grandparents in Italy send us Italian language DVDs, which the kids watch on her MacBook. Over time, they have managed to use up all of their region changes on the Apple DVD player, and that didn't take too long. I won't rant on too much about how stupid DVD regions are, as I'm sure you agree. But my question is, uh, I can reset the player or can I reset the player or get around this problem? We can use VLC player, but some DVDs won't mount or crash and VLC doesn't remember the last time played or have all the nice features that Apple's DVD player has. The other option is to rip the DVD with Mac the Ripper and handbrake then uh, to M4V, but then I'd be breaking the law because in New Zealand, copyright law allows me to make backup copies of media I own only. Okay, so uh, what I'm going to do is I'm going to translate a little bit of what Dave wrote here for those of you that haven't tried this. First of all, DVDs are married to specific world regions. Many DVDs, not all, but many commercial DVDs are married to specific world regions and all DVD players are married to specific world regions. And what that means is a DVD player that you buy in the U.S. is out of the box built to play DVDs that are intended for the U.S. If you get a DVD that is for another region of the world, uh, depending on your DVD player, you may or may not be able to play that DVD, even though it's in a format that works for you and all of that good stuff. 
your MacBook and really any DVD drive that comes with any Mac has the ability to shift regions. But I believe you can only do it a maximum five times uh, and then it locks to whatever the final region is that you switch to. And there's all sorts of international copyright law and uh, stuff like that, that that goes behind this. Um, As Dave points out, VLC player, which is a third party free app, will play DVDs from regions that your DVD player, that your DVD drive is not coded for, but it doesn't have all these great features. So 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 his question is, what can I do and can I reset this count on my DVD drive? And John, I think you have uh, the official and perhaps the unofficial answer to this question. Well, that's a nice way of putting it. So if you go to Apple and you look this up, they have a nice article that talks about all of this stupidity. Uh, DVD <laughs> player agree. about DVD video regions. Well, you know, it may not be stupid from the viewpoint of a studio as far as, you know, phasing the release and what they charge in different markets and stuff like that. Right. But I'm going to be on the side of, you know, I want to watch my movie. Yeah. Especially in a situation like this here, where I don't think what's being done is wrong. It's just bought in one country and you try to play it in another. Right. And, and to me, that's a legitimate use. You know, if you're the owner or you, you possess it. Sure. Anyways. And the, the, the statement. So what happens here after the switching? So, so one thing you should know, and I, I think you mentioned, but to clarify, I think it's part of the rules or the licensing that you have to. Um, well, I'll, I'll, there's a caveat to that. But as you said, Dave, most. And I'm going to modify it. Most DVD players have a region in them. Now, one solution here, take a little tangent, is to get a region free player. And they do exist. I did a little search on Amazon. Now, whether it really is, but that's what that means, region free, in that normally, or, or at least the player that you have in the Mac and, and others, will let you set the region, uh, I think, up to five times. Then it burns it in the firmware of the reader, and that's it. You're done it will not normally let you revisit that because it's, it's something that's integral to the drive as far as it, it knowing this, okay. right? There are a couple of things you could do. So one, I found one page. Now this gets uh, risky and geeky and you may destroy everything. But now I mentioned the firmware, which is the software that's inside of the DVD player. Right. There are programs and I found one. Now I thought this was mostly on the PC side, but I did find a page, um, I think it's, I don't know if it's based in French, but it has a French version, also has a U.S. version. What you want to do, and they, they basically have firmware that will, um, in my opinion, repair okay. <laughs> your drive to ignore regions. I think they also call this RPC1, which is a, a player that ignores the region. It doesn't care about it. Okay. And they list a whole bunch of machines here, and actually they even have data. So, you know, of course, you got to find out what DVD drive do you have? And right. Apple just calls it the super drive. So how do you do that? System profiler. Go to system profiler. I think it's under disk burning. And it's going to list the model. And for the most part, I think, well, for the most part, I think they do uh, Matsushita, which I think is Panasonic. But sometimes they use different vendors. But for the most part, it looks like that. That's who they're using. So I got the model number for mine, Dave. It's a DVD-R UJ867. I'm like, okay, now that I have that model number, I can look at the table they have here. Unfortunately, in the column that says firmware RPC1, there's a little dash indicating that they don't have one for the, the model you and I have, Dave. However, they have it for a whole bunch of other prior and, and other models that are used in uh, Mac machines. So... So in, in theory, Dave could replace the DVD drive in his MacBook with one that is region free and won't wind up getting locked to a specific region. But but there's some there's some caveats well, there. It has to. Well, be what I was saying here, this actually reburns the firmware in the DVD player in the machine. Right, but but it but it may or may not work with the drive that's in his machine. If he had the same machine we have, he would have right. to get a different drive. That's correct. So, okay. so that's the options for the drive inside of your particular Mac. But then I, I see where you're going. There, there's another option, I guess, which is you get a. Well, you, you know, if if you can't change the firmware in the drive and, and of course, check this chart that that John's found, we'll put it in the show notes. If you can't, then you have two options. One is to replace the drive in your Mac with one that's region free or region resettable with this utility. The caveat here is that you need to make sure that this drive is compatible with Apple's DVD player. 
Otherwise, you won't be getting any of the benefits that you thought you were going to get because it won't play from DVD player. And it, it is particular about the drives uh, that it will work with. Typically, it's any drive that was shipped in a Mac and nothing else. Uh, so that's one option. The other option is to leave the drive in your MacBook. Let it freeze to I would probably do region one, but whatever region you're playing from most frequently, go ahead and, and freeze it to that and then get an external DVD drive. And let that freeze to the Italian region. Uh, and then you're, you know, then you're good to go. It's a silly solution. Frankly, what I would do is I would do exactly what you described. And it is what I do. Anytime I get a, reg- a DVD from outside of our region here is I rip it with Mac the Ripper uh, and then convert it with a handbrake. And it's good to go. Not only can I play it on my Mac, but I can stream it direct to my TiVo and uh, and life is good. So so that's uh, y- you have to decide where you fall on the on the legality of that. But again, if, if you have the rights to it, if someone has shipped you this DVD from Italy, well, I mean, then it, you know, ownership kind of falls into it's yours, right? I mean, at least to, to do this with, you're allowed to play it. So, you know, no one has been sued yet for making a copy of a DVD for personal use. Now that doesn't mean that you or me won't be the first, but uh, but it has that this law has not yet been tested by the courts, so it'll be very interesting to see. But uh, but there you yeah, go. and I'd look around. Uh, well, one that I remember that a lot of people talk about, and I think it's you know your basic player uh, Apex uh, supposedly has a a bunch that are region free. So you can either go to any online shopping site and search for region free DVD player, and yep. assuming you trust that they're listing it properly, then the player will just happily play whatever you put into it. So awesome. All right, moving on to Jason. Jason says, or writes, I am a PC network admin and support tech, but when it comes to the Mac, I'm still learning. Thanks to podcasts like yours, I'm getting pretty fluent on the Mac, but when it comes down to hardcore troubleshooting, I am weak. The problem I'm having is there is a deleted file listed in the Finder sidebar under Places. I think it has something to do with Dropbox. That file used to be in my Dropbox folder, but I have no idea why it's there or how to get rid of it. All right, this is uh, an easy one, but uh, but I thought it was worth going through in the show, not only to talk about how to remove things from places, but also to add. So to answer your question, Jason, to remove something from places. And again, just to be clear, what we're talking about is in the finder uh, in, I believe, Leopard and later. So 10.5 or 10.6, you have lists in the sidebar on the left and one of those lists is places it usually has your home folder your documents your applications your favorites uh if you install the dropbox uh, program that goes and throws something over there but you can put your own stuff there and you can reorder these and it's as simple as dragging with the mouse so if something is in there and you want it out grab it and drag it out of the sidebar uh, and it'll turn into a little, you know, poofy trash thing and away it goes. This does not delete the file or folder. This simply removes it from places. Conversely, to put something in there, you just drag it in and you can reorder. So if you want something higher or lower on the list, just grab it and move it around. You'll see a little uh, intuitive black bar appear where you're going to put it. And when you're it, when the bar appears where you want it, drop it and it fits. So. Oh, that's, that's one way. That's one way of doing it. That's that's, and I think that's the way that should work for Jason here, and hopefully for most of you. But, should, but John, you found something else. Well, I found something else because this is part of it. So this led me on a quest. Okay. Because I know that what's in there is stored on the system somewhere. The question is, sure. where? I'll tell you where, and I'll tell you part of how I found out. Okay. So the file that contains this, at first I thought it was com.apple.finder.plist. Now this is found in. Your home folder, library, preferences are preferences specific to, to your user account. Okay. So, uh, and I looked, you know, it kind of makes sense. It's part of the finder, right? So I looked in com, Apple, fi- uh, finder, plist, didn't find it there. Then I'm like, huh, you know, if I change something in there that I should be able to look at the listing of the preference files and eventually the one that's impacted will come up to the top. Yes, and we've talked about this before. There's an obvious way of doing it. There are, of course, situations where you're not going to get the, the files that you want to see listed. But Sure. So I did that. And here's the file, Dave. com.apple.sidebarlists.plist. Huh. And there's a specific item in there, a specific key 
And there are a number of ways that you could change this file. I would use property list editor. It's part of the developer tools. Uh, I believe BB edit will also let you edit these files. Text. I believe text wrangler will let you do it too. And that's available for free from, from bare bones actually from our uh, right. sponsor there. Yep. So there's a key here, user items. And under that key is a thing called custom list items. And what's under that is all of the things that are in your places. Okay. So what I'm suspecting, well, one I mean, I suppose you could start from scratch and whack this file. Maybe this file has been modified, you know, permissions or whatnot, so that the change that you make or trying to make doesn't take hold because it's not allowing the system to, to rewrite this file. Sure. Or I would say you could just dig into this and just delete that one key for the, the file that no longer exists. I can't see any harm in doing that. Makes right? sense. Yeah. Yeah. So, I, uh, yeah. But, but I, I, it, I just want to take the chance to kind of get underneath and whenever you run into a similar problem, well, how do you find out which plist file has this? So, but you're you're certainly right, Dave. I mean, that's the way it should work, and that's the general advice is the face. And I actually put a lot. I, I like the sidebar because I put a lot of common things. I mean, the only where do you go? Finder preferences sidebar lets you select like four good suggestions. You know, like I think documents and things like that. But you can put anything you want in there. So, I, I think it it just kind of got scrambled. Well, it, my get no, my I don't think it got scrambled. I think what happened was he wound up dragging a file there. Then the file got renamed, and now it looks a little funky. And all he's got to do is drag it out. Hmm. I, right. I think I think it's that simple. So yeah, yeah. All right, on to David's question. Another good one, uh, and I think it'll be David's question. But uh, now I can't uh, I can't get it to play. Why can't I get it to play, John? What has happened here? Let's see. David? Hi, Dave and John. My name's David, and I'm calling from England. I'm hoping you can help me. After years of pain and suffering, I finally gave up with Windows in early 2009 and bought a Minimac, an 8-core Mac Pro, and a 24-inch iMac. I use the Minimac for general office tasks such as mail, internet, creating documents, and it's currently used all day, every day. The Mac Pro is used for video editing and has intermittent use during the day and in fact some days it isn't used at all. The iMac is used for office and simple video editing tasks and is generally used at some point each day. At the moment I switch the computers on when I need to use them and then switch them all off when I leave my office at the end of each day. My question is, in the interests of long life and reliability, is this the correct thing to do? Should I be leaving them all on all of the time and let them naturally sleep when not being used? Love the show. Keep up the good work. Here's where you cut me off. Thanks, David. Uh, all right. Uh, we may have different religions on this. We may not. I'm not sure, John. My what I do with my machines is I uh, I do the latter. I have energy savers set to sleep them when that's appropriate. And for the most part, that works. So, of course, you could go back to previous shows where we've talked about issues where machines won't sleep. But uh, but for the most part, mine sleep when they're supposed to. And it's much faster for me to wake them up than to sit uh, for every morning and and wait for it to start up. And I've got some machines I don't necessarily use all the time. So uh, it's handy for me to be able to pop up to the studio and just wake the machine up. And here I am. I don't have to wait for it to reboot or or anything like that. So. So, yeah, I, I don't shut them off. I leave it running all the time, but but let it sleep. I will add, though, that every single machine with which I do this is protected by a UPS. Uh, so if there is some sort of power surge or lightning or whatever, it could be brownout that causes uh, electrical harm. In theory, all my computers are protected from that, regardless uh, of whether they're off or on. So so that's that that's where I go with that one. John, what do you uh, what do you do? What do I do? Depends on which machine you're talking about. So at this point, I have two. Okay. I have my G5, which I use for the podcasting. And that is a machine I do not use every day. I may use it. I use it at least once a week when we're doing this, Dave. Sure. Or when I'm doing other podcasts, because all my other hardware is near it. General, this machine I turn off. Okay. And I would say my guideline in my mind is if I'm not going to use the machine for the rest of the day, or even if I'm going to use it the next day, I will turn it off. So it, wait, uh, I just want to get clarification. If you are going to use it the next day, you'll turn it off anyway. Yes. Okay. 
So if I'm using it during the day and I know later in the day I may have another follow-up task, then I will sure uh, let it sleep. But if, if it's not going to be used for, yeah, at least the day. All right. So anyways, if at the end of the day, it, it gets shut off. Okay. Sometimes what I will do very quickly, if I need to grab a quick file from it, is I will just start the machine up but not log into it. I will do it remotely with the screen share. Yep. If I need to just grab a file or something and then shut it off remotely. Um, that happens sometimes. Now, my MacBook, which is my, my day-to-day machine, and I do my email and my chat and Twitter and, and all of that stuff. Yep. That machine, I just put, I put to sleep at night. Okay. Even if you're going to use it the next day? It, it doesn't matter, but right. because I use it daily. So, it. so my usage pattern on the portable is I use it every day. Sure. I, I think that makes sense. Yeah, sure. So I'll sleep it because, I mean, the the... the Amount of time spent starting the machine up to me is not a big deal for the other machine because I, if I had to do it every day, maybe I would. Yeah. Yeah. So I think that's my criteria. Um, as far as, and I think the, what's being stated or wasn't stated, but, but the concern is, you know, is turning it on and off all the time going to wear the machine out as far as the components? And I don't think so. I, yeah, you know, there's, there's, it, there's additional wear and there are different levels of wear and tear that happen to a sleeping machine versus a machine that's powered up and down. But I don't think either is any worse than the other. I mean, the only thing I'd suggest if I had to guess at a component in a machine that would fail first and one you may want to be careful of, I mean, maybe the screen though, I think we've pretty much gotten over the problems with, with, uh, you know, burn in and stuff like that. Uh, right. Certainly not and, and energy consumption, but I still think most, uh, most, uh, tubes or LCDs have a fixed lifetime. So sure. But um, even if the machine is on the, the screen can go to sleep, right? I mean, that's a separate thing from the machine sleeping. Right. Yeah. And similar with the hard drive. So the hard drive is another thing. It's a mechanical device. I mean, if you keep turning it on and off, on and off, on and off, I mean, it, it'll accelerate because a lot of these things, you know, I was looking for this and I couldn't find it for one of my drives, but you know, there's a term called MTBF mean time between failures. And a lot of makers of various equipment will specify this figure in that, you know, they'll do tests and extrapolate how long the device can run before it will typically fail. Got it. Um, but even then, I think for most hard drives these days, when I see the figure, I mean, it, you know, it's in the tens of thousands of hours or hundreds of thousands of hours. Um, yeah. So, uh, I don't know. And, and power draw from what I've seen, I mean, sleeping the machine draws, you know, very low. I mean, on the order of less than a light bulb, I think, I mean, a lot of computers use less than a light bulb anyways, but you know, you may be talking single digit in Watts. So yeah. that's another thing. I mean, that's why I don't leave the, uh, you know, the desktop machine on, even if it is in sleep mode, it'll, you know, consume a few watts. Cool. All right. Well, hopefully that, uh, that gets David what he needs to know and, uh, and hopefully for the rest of you too. But if not, you know, you can always, uh, always let us know. I do want to take this time, John, to talk about our second sponsor. Gazelle is back. Gazelle.com. This is very interesting. Uh, and, and, and every time I think about this service, I wind up, I go to gazelle.com and I encourage you to do this too. What they are is they are a company that's willing to buy back your old electronics. Now they go and, and resell them and do their thing with them, but they'll buy this stuff back from you and, uh, and they'll tell you what the price is going to be. And they'll even put a box together for you in, in many cases. Uh, so it costs you, you know, there's, there's no cash outlay on your part. They pay for the shipping. Uh, they, they take care of it all. So what you do is go online to gazelle.com and find whatever gadget it is. Uh, you know, an old cell phone, an old iPod, an old MacBook, right? You can do this with with lots of different things. And just type it in or find it there. It's they got a really, really slick interface. And put it, you know, find it, and then it'll ask you some questions. You know, what condition is it in? Does it have a working, you know, uh, does it work? Does, you know, is there a scratch on it, et cetera, et cetera. And then it'll tell you, here's the, uh, here's what, Gazelle will pay for it. If you like the number, you send it in. If Gazelle gets it or when Gazelle gets it, they'll take a look at it and they'll decide, okay, yeah, it's exactly like this guy described. That's what we'll give him. And boom, they, you know, send you the money. If it's worse than you describe, well, they'll send you an email and say, Hey, look, you know, it's uh, in our opinion, it's, it's worth X. If you want it, uh, we'll send you the money. If not, we'll send the thing back to you 
you know, no harm, no foul. And the same is true for if it's better than what you thought, they might say, Hey, look, man, you know, this is better for you. So this is all gazelle.com again, cell phones, laptops, cameras, MP3 players, uh, you know, old GPS devices, old handheld game units, all that stuff. Uh, and everything's hand inspected to ensure that you're getting uh, exactly the, the fair value that uh, they'll do it. And of course, by using it, you know, you're helping prevent a lot of what they call e-waste. I think they said they, they go through 70 tons of e-waste per year. Now, here's the really cool thing. You folks get an extra 5%. So if you, when you're checking out, you use the code MACGEEK and you get an extra 5% as a bonus just for using the code that we've provided to you. Of course, that reflects well on us and we appreciate you using the code, but there's something in it for you. It's not just, uh, it's not just goodwill. It's an extra 5%. So gazelle.com is the place to go to get cash for all of your used gadgets. We've checked these guys out. They, uh, they've been around for a while. And uh, and they're on the up and up. So gazelle.com, they uh, I've sent some stuff in and it's all worked out just fine. So gazelle.com again with your coupon code MacGeek for your 5% bonus. Time to move on to Andy, John. Yeah. Or should mm-hmm. we? Uh, yeah. All right. Well, well let's see. Uh, let's see where we go with this. Hey, guys, it's Andy uh, from the University of New Hampshire. And um, I got a question. I've been thinking about learning Apple script and. Wondering if you have recommendations for somebody who really is not a programmer um, to teach myself AppleScript uh, and, you know, be a, a book or a video tutorial or something. Uh, I'm looking for something which is not expensive and which is pretty concise. I'm pretty good at picking stuff up quickly. Uh, and I get bored easily. So if you have any thoughts, I'd appreciate it. Uh, this is where you cut me off. Awesome. All right. Uh, yeah. So I've done eh, not a ton of Apple script programming, John, but I've done my fair share. And for me, I learned it just by looking at other people's code. Uh, and that, that that's, that's not a bad way to learn a language. I'm not sure if it's your first language, Apple script's pretty, uh, a pretty easily readable language in, in terms of it being pretty close to English. You, you can probably follow your way through, but there's some constructs and things that may be difficult if you've never done any programming at all before. But if you've done any kind of scripting, uh, you can probably learn Apple script just from reading other people's code. Now, you can find all sorts of different code all over the web. There, there are a couple of sites that always come to mind. Uh, Mac OS, Mac OS automation.com and MacScriptor.net are out there. And we found a couple other articles that we'll put into the show notes. Specifically, there's a, a intro kind of, I don't want to say it's a PDF because it's not, but it's a, a multi-page little document on Apple's website called the uh, Apple script introduction. And that's got a lot of stuff in it too. So I, I think between those three places and, and maybe there's, there's one more, there's a, Oh, I got one more and I right. got, yeah, go ahead. Well, the definitive one I'd say would right. be developer.apple.com slash Apple script. Cool. Are there tutorials there? There's getting started. There's guides, there's reference, there's sample code. Perfect. Perfect. Yep, I had to poke around a little bit here. You know, that's the one thing I like about Apple. Their, their URLs kind of make sense. I mean, mm-hmm. this one couldn't be simpler. I knew it was on developer.apple.com. And if you haven't already, go there. And I, I think you can still sign up for a free account. That'll give you oh, access yeah. to some of the resources, not a, not not all of them. Though, heck, now, for 99 bucks, I mean, why not? So, um, right. But yeah, with you, Dave, uh, taking stuff that works and maybe going through it. And, and the one feature I would suggest sometimes is you can, you can tell whatever environment you're in to step through something. So as it executes each line of code, you can see the effect that it has on the system. So, so try to look for that if you're going to use anything. You know, any, well, I think any environment will, will have that buried somewhere because it helps you test your code. But yeah, I'm with you. Take stuff that works. You should be able to change it, and you know, hopefully you won't <laughs> do too much damage. I feel I break everything. Uh, so there is one other way that I just thought of now. Uh, that I do remember using back in the beginning. And, and of course there's no reason I couldn't use it now. And that is that if you open up Apple script editor on your Mac, uh, 
Uh, you'll be brought to a blank window where you can start typing some some code. However, there's a record button at the top. You've got record, stop, run, and then compile. The record button's really handy because you can have it follow you around. So you hit record, you go do whatever it is you're going to do, and then come back and hit uh, you know stop recording, and it will build the Apple script for whatever you did. Now, it might not be the most efficient code, because it's sort of following your steps as opposed to looking at it and saying, here's the most efficient way to do this. But it certainly will get you started because the system is there building the code for the operation you just did. So in theory, you know what the code does because you just did it. Now you can follow through the code and if nothing else, learn ways of constructing things that will perform those types of operations. So that's that's my uh, my last minute little little bit there for that. Anything else to add before we move on, John? I'm with you. And uh, yeah, that program is in uh, your utilities folder, by the way, Apple script editor. Oh, cool. Yeah. Applications, utilities, right? Mm -hmm. All right. Uh, Tom writes, I started up my MacBook Pro first thing this morning, as I do every morning, and I got an error message warning me that my computer's clock was set to a date before January 1st, 2008. This may cause issues. And then I also got messages from applications, which I didn't recognize requesting network access. I instantly rebooted the Mac and got the exact same issue again. I allowed the mystery apps to connect to the network uh, as airport wasn't working. So I figured I must have been one of the things requesting access. Doing this allowed me to connect, although I had to type in my network password or key again. After I'd managed to connect to the Internet, my clock eventually reset itself to the correct time and the issue seems to have gone away for now. But I'm worried about what caused the issue in the first place. I managed to find a few forum posts online, people having the same issue, but none of them had a definitive solution. Some mentioned that the PRAM battery could be dead, but my MacBook Pro is just over a year old. So this surely can't be the case. Okay, Uh, so this is exactly one of the symptoms that you would see if the PRAM battery were dead. Now, as we were prepping this, I said, but of course it's a MacBook pro, so there is no PRAM battery. And that's when, Oh, ho, where I said, Oh, I don't think I said, Oh, ho, but I said, I'm not sure what you said. <laughs> I'm like, well here, Dave, look what I found. And I sent you an, I fix it article yep. to uh, a guide called installing MacBook pro 15 inch core two duo models a1226 and A1260, and you and I both have the A1260, Dave. Right. And I don't know, other than my having the box handy, I don't know how you'd find that out. I don't know if that's in System Profiler. But anyways, what you and I have, and the way that they key it on iFixit is by the model number. And believe it or not, Dave, uh, we can replace the PRAM battery in our machines. So I'm shocked. Well, I am too. Well, I actually remember that my PowerBook G4 did not have one. And the reason, and, and I remember there was an Apple knowledge base article and I can't find anything about PRAM batteries anymore. I'm actually going to wag my finger at Apple about this because I, I know a lot. As shake far as I can finger, tell. Remember, shake your finger, wag your fist. <laughs> I don't want to dislocate anything. Okay. So, uh, but it gets me because the, the, the information is available for my fix it, but not from Apple. Well, we of just saw they have a, available from Apple because this is not a user serviceable part. Almost and, certainly not. It, yeah, you got to rip buried. the machine open. You got to peel off every layer, and I think you even got to pull the DVD drive out, right, in order to get to this on our I think, machines. It's different on everyone, yes. of course, right? Yeah. Um, but I would say, and I couldn't find either a utility that would show the voltage level of the battery. You would think that's an easy thing to read because with things like iStat menus. Yep. It'll tell you the voltage of almost everything inside the machine. It so not be I was very for it. Yeah. I was very frustrated. Though, you know, I mean that's trivial. I mean for sensors for everything else. So I'm going to guess that either it is in fact dead, which would sound unusual after a year. I mean these things typically now, last 3 to 5 years in my experience. Let me ask you a question though. And this is going to get a little bit geeky on the electronic side, but is this a a battery? It in so far as that it is built to hold a charge for a long period of time, or is it just a, a short term capacitor, right? Because the, the assumption is that your Mac is always going to have a battery in it. Your, your portable Mac is always going to have a battery in it because, of course, there's a battery for to, to run the Mac. And, and I think that was where it went with the power books, right? That there was there was a capacitor in there that would hold this that would, you know, that would trickle date, trickle uh, power out to 
the PRAM chip to keep it alive while you swapped out a battery. But it, it long term, it wasn't going to it wasn't going to hold a charge for, you know, years kind of thing. Uh, and I'm not sure if that's the case with this or not. And it may be impossible for us to tell at this point in time, you know, whether that's actually a battery or if we're kind of confusing the you know battery versus versus capacity. It's absolutely a battery. OK, I am 100 percent certain because I'm looking at the picture of it and it says CR2025. It's a button cell with two oh, wires. Oh, it is. And it's just OK. So it's just sealed in, in, uh, in blue plastic to insulate it. Right. Oh. No, no, you bring up a good point, but, but the amount of power that you need to maintain a tiny, tiny bit of RAM is infinitesimal compared mm. to what the battery can provide as far as milliamp hours. Right. Know. Okay, so no, if this is a CR2025, then that, you're right, that's a real battery that, that should, and, and, you know, key in on that word, and I won't whistle again when I say should. Yeah, that uh, was on the high end. That, nice? <laughs> um, that uh, it, you know, lasts for years. Like any battery, it's possible, you know, these things are mass produced and, and anything can happen. So for it to die after a year, now that's one, this is one potential scenario, but it may not be your battery. It could be that your PRAM itself, just the data got corrupted. Yes. And right. And, and then, you know, the machine got data from it, but it said, well, that's not time data. I recognize. So your Mac said, uh, we're going to call it, you know, oh, 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 one, oh, one, oh, one. And we're done. You know, that's that. So or whatever time it, you know, whatever time and date it, it, it applied the the trick will be is if this happens, you know, repeatedly over and over again, all you got to do is shut your Mac off, uh, you know, leave it overnight and turn it back on. If it's back to the zero, 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 then it's a battery thing in all likelihood. If it's not, then it probably just was corrupted PRAM. And, you know, I, at this point, I would do a reset of the PRAM on reboot which is hold down uh, command option PR as soon as you turn the computer on and wait until you hear the startup chime twice, then you can release it. That should reset the PRAM and give it kind of bare neutral values. And, and then you should be able to come up from there. So that's my thought. That's how I'm feeling about it, John. And the way he's doing it is right though, because yeah, you now I think this is checked by default, but if it's not, if you go to system preferences, date and time, there's a little checkbox saying set date and time automatically, which right goes to a time server Apple or someone else and, and resets it for you. Yep. But yeah, I hope it's not the, uh, I'd, I'd love to know, especially any of our moles that work at Apple. I mean, is there a, a magic list that we don't know about that shows uh, which machines still have a, a PRAM or there'd be a button cell or, you know, one of those, you know, chunky little, cause I think the, the chunky ones there, the, you know, almost like end cells, Dave, I think those yep. are still in a lot of the desktop machines. Yeah. They, 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 they're always purple when you buy them. Right. But they, they're like, they look like uh, maybe a third of a triple a battery or something, but it's a cylindrical mm. kind of thing. Yep. All right. Uh, I think it's time to move on to some quick tips here, John. We've got, uh, and I think this is going to have to be a new segment in the show. Cause it seems like we're getting more and more tips from you guys. Uh, and, 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 and gals, if that's the right term to use, but I use no. you guys, I use you guys. It, it's a new England thing. Uh, it's similar to a, you know, a y'all kind of from, from Texas where it's this, this plural, uh, gender, gender neutral sort of thing. So that's what you guys means when it comes from me. Anyway, quick tips. Uh, there are lots of them coming in. So starting with this one from Bill, Bill actually sent in two, uh, with regards to front row trailers, Bill says a while back when I opened front row to look at movie trailers, they were not in alphabetical order. I found that frustrating and I wanted to know how to get them back. The solution found after some Google foo was to download and install a system preference pane called front row trailers. It lets you choose whether the trailers are sorted by name or by release date. And by itself, that email would have been cool stuff found, but there's a yet another tip in here. That's a great little tip. Do uh, you want to say anything about this front row trailers thing before we move on to Bill's second tip that he sent in? No, I haven't been using front row. For, All right. Uh... Uh, the second one's about PDF pen. Bill says, I first purchased PDF pen a year ago because I needed to work with some PDFs made from scanned documents. I was particularly interested in the OCR. Originally, PDF Pen used an open source OCR engine that was not that great. But in more recent versions, uh, it uses a much better engine. Here's the tip. If you have a document that is partly scanned, 
and part not scanned, most commonly a scanned document that has had sequential numbering added as a footer, PDF pen will not offer to run OCR on it. OCR being optical character recognition, and it converts the graphics to text. And the OCR page command under the edit menu will be grayed out. It does this because the sequential numbering was added as renderable text, so PDF pen assumes there is no scanned text to OCR. The solution, hold down the option key before opening PDF pen's edit menu. Then you can force PDF Pen to run the OCR engine on the document. If you didn't know the option key trick, it can get very frustrating. So cool. Thanks, Bill. That's, uh, you know, the option key is one of those things that is constantly used by Apple to add functionality for, uh, you know, for geeks, but to hide too many extra options from, you know, 95 to 99% of all the users. And uh, it's cool when a, a third party developer goes ahead and puts PD it puts you know the the option key trick into uh into their app to enhance functionality or or to give you access to do something that the app might otherwise limit you from doing i like it anything anything on that john before we hear from mr x i i like either just diving into the preferences and and you know messing around there and see if you can make what you want happen happen or um no i well sometimes i do that yeah, sometimes I'm surprised, but uh, secrets is also another. I don't know if uh, if if this yeah. is a if this is a utility that gives you access to an unpublished feature or. But anyway, secrets is is always good. Though you want to be careful with some of these because yeah, they you know may break in the future. Right. All right. Cool. Moving on to a quick tip from Mister X that I'm sure we'll follow up on here. Um, far more important than making a backup before you do a nuke and pave is making sure your backup works. Um, you know, with, with a carbon copy clone or backup, it's probably sufficient to boot to that drive and make sure everything boots up and just run a few apps. But uh, I can tell you, uh, backup is nothing if you can't, if you don't do a test restore. Uh, I can tell you about some people that uh, lost their server in a fire and they weren't able to restore from their tapes until they were able to uh, secure a tape drive of the exact same make and model as the one that they had been using before. So, like I said, backup without a test restore is almost as bad as not backing up at all. Anyway, bye. Yeah, it's true, John. Back in the uh, in the days when I was doing a lot of consulting and and backups and backup software was really built for for nerds only. Right. You know, there was, you know, the tape drive and everybody knew everybody in the office would know how to make the backup happen. But nobody ever knew how to do a restore. And even for for us nerds, it was like, well, oh, yeah, I got to get in there and I got it because it wasn't the kind of thing you did all the time. And he and Mr. X here is absolutely right. Uh, you know, make sure not only that you're you can restore from your backup and your backup is restorable, but make sure you know how to do it. Time Machine makes it really, really easy. Of course, a carbon copy cloner backup uh, is is also very simple because it's just a clone and you can copy back from that or even just boot from it. But yeah, testing that uh, is is key. I, I regularly test a Time Machine backup and, and again, regularly boot from a carbon copy clone. That's or a super duper clone or whatever it is that you choose to use to do your to do your cloning. I guess get backup is out there now, too. So lots of those things. But uh Test your backups. It's good advice. Any anything here, John? Mm, I make multiple backups. Do you I don't test, always test, test any of them. Well, no. When I do a full disk backup, like I think I'm going to have to send in my MacBook shortly for oh. uh, repair. Eh, keyboard's flaking out. Yeah, or the, the US the trackpad and the keyboard are starting to flake out. If I if I it's, it's all one assembly. Yeah. If I sleep the machine and 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 I see a lot of things in the console talking about USB multi touch driver, so. Oh. I think it's a hardware thing because again, if I if I re, if I sleep it and wake it up, then everything's fine for a little while longer. It's still somewhat usable. Hopefully, it'll last through uh, through the show. <laughs> but um, no. But I will. Always, whenever I do a carbon copy cloner, I will always try to boot from that drive. And to me, that's a sign that everything uh, went well. Because I think there was one time it wasn't carbon copy cloner; it was something else, and I neglected to make it a bootable copy, and that that was kind of upsetting because in that case, I was stuck. <laughs> or I think I had to jump through a few hoops. I think yeah, I had to boot from a DVD and then copy a system. Just stuff you don't don't want to mess with when you're 
you know, in the panic of trying to <laughs> restore yeah. your system. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Cool. All right. Uh, last week, and we got a lot of email and a lot of comments about this. Last week, we talked about uh, just I just mentioned an aside about using Command Shift Four to do a screenshot. Now, Command Shift to 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 rehash, and I, maybe it was two weeks ago, but uh, Command Shift Three will take a shot of uh, the entire screen and save it to a file on the desktop. Command Shift Four will bring up what I'll call crosshairs, and we'll read a little bit about that too in a minute. Uh, where you can draw a shape uh, or draw a box on the screen and then a file containing just the contents of that box is saved to the desktop. And then we got a lot, a lot of comments about what else you can do. And, uh, and we'll share one from David here. He said, uh, no, let me da, 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 da. Dave then tangentially mentioned how to take a screenshot using command shift three to capture the whole screen or command shift four. Uh, to capture the area in a box drawn using crosshairs. I believe what Dave called crosshairs is correctly called a registration mark. And that's what I'm going to call it. All right. Uh, but you didn't mention the coolest part of command shift four. Once the cursor turns into a registration mark, if you press the space bar, the window, the registration mark is over is automatically highlighted. And the cursor actually turns into a little camera. It could be the frontmost window or a window behind the frontmost window, as long as the registration mark is over it. If you then click your mouse, you get a screenshot of the entire window and just that window, complete with a nifty little drop shadow. Not the most stunning screenshot, but you get the idea. On my iMac screen, in the space where the shadow appears uh, in the screenshot, there were other windows full of text and images and whatnot, but as you see, that clutter does not appear on the screenshot. And... You did not have to fool around with moving the registration mark, i.e. crosshairs pixel by pixel to the corners of the window just to select the window. Command shift four and then space did it for me. Uh, okay, so and he's absolutely right. So now let's add two more things to this. Uh, number one, if you hit command shift four and you get the, the registration mark or crosshairs or then you hit the space bar and get the camera and then decide I don't want to take a screenshot, escape will get you back out of it. Number two and this works with command shift three or command shift four, John, if you hold down the control key. So command control shift three or command control shift four, whatever you take a screenshot of will not be saved to your desktop, but will be saved to the clipboard. So you can then go and paste it in to your favorite image editor. Or as I often do when I need to take a screenshot to email someone, I'll do a command control shift four. Grab what I need, paste it directly into the email and off I go. And that way there's no file littering my desktop that I've got to remember to throw away later and all of that good stuff. So that's uh, that, that's what I know about command shift three and four, especially now that Dave filled us in. Anything else, John? Did I lose? No, you, I don't. Okay. No, no, I'm I'm here. I, I seem to recall another one that involved cap sock. I'm, I'm going to have to look around for it. It, it. it may have been a, older version of the OS that had that. Oh, caps lock. Hmm. I don't, I'm trying to rack my brain here. I don't remember caps lock doing anything. Hmm. And I'm trying it now. Of course, I'm sure, I'm, I'm sure me and, you know, 10,000 other people are trying it right now, listening to, to this, but uh, what does caps lock do? What I do like when you uh, get the crosshairs or registration mark in snow leopard, it tells you, where you are on the screen in, in terms of pixels. Uh, but as soon as you start drawing with it, it tells you how many pixels, both wide and, and tall you have selected. So if you know, I need to get a, you know, 300 by 300, uh, you know, piece here. And I want to make sure it's square. You've got a, a good chance of being able to do that. Cause it's telling you what's happening with the little numbers that are hanging off the, uh, hanging off the registration mark. Which is cool. I like it. Anything else? Did you figure out your uh, caps lock thing while I while I riffed on that there for a second, John? No, I, I see something okay. suggesting that you use it for printing, but uh, no, it looks it looks like it was something from from the past that All just right. bubbled up. All right. Well, uh, our sponsor for the next segment of the show is Citrix Go to Assist. Yet another sponsor that has come back for the uh, the big Q four here. Uh, Citrix Go to Assist. It is built to connect to another computer. 
and it's called go to assist express and it makes this process so much easier. If you're a, a let's say you're a, an IT or software consultant, right? Always looking for a way to have a, a leg up. Well, having to drive to and from different places just to make a change on a computer, of course, is not economical. And you can't, of course, be in two places at once, but you can with GoToAssist Express. What you do is you set up GoToAssist, uh, you set up your account with it, and you then tell the person on the other end to visit a special website. You create a session and it creates a URL. You pass that URL along to the other person and they visit it in their web browser. It opens up in their web browser, ask them to agree to let you in and boom, it lets you in. They didn't have to install software. They didn't have to poke holes in their router. John, you and I tried this a couple of months back. It was, mm -hmm. it was smooth. Awesome. Yeah. It's just really, really smooth. So, uh, you know, obviously for, for, and I know we have many of you out there who are consultants, uh, you're saving travel time. You're potentially doing, you know, helping two clients at once. I know I used to do this kind of thing, uh, back in the day when I was uh, doing all sorts of consulting and I'd have multiple computers up if I was working on different things. And that's always helpful to maximize uh, your earning potential. And of course you're saving, uh, saving gas. So, uh, what, what you want to do is. Mac Geek Gab listeners can try GoToAssist Express free for 30 days by visiting uh, GoToAssist.com slash geek. That's GoToAssist.com slash geek. And that will uh, that'll get you your 30 day free trial. You will have to put in a credit card for this, uh, but you can cancel immediately and you still get your 30 days free. So Make sure you, uh, you know, don't don't worry about it. Uh, it'll, it, you know, if, if you want to just check it out, they're they're totally fine with the uh, with the thirty day free trial. They know that you'll love it so much that you'll just keep using it, and that's uh, that's a beautiful thing. So go to assist dot com slash geek. We'll get you there, and that is a different code than we used in the past. So if you tried it in the past, uh, use this code this time. Go to assist dot com slash geek. All right. Some follow-ups from the last show, John. Oh, I found out what it was. Oh, good. That, that yeah, was, go, that go. was just, well, that was just, that was something that worked in OS 9. Oh, and what did it do in OS 9? Well, I think it, it, it did similar. It would, uh, it, it was the modifier that we would use to capture a window rather than a uh, oh, portion of the screen. Okay. So before it made like a little bullseye. I don't know why that stuck in my mind. I, I think I was doing some OS 9 stuff the other day. So, wow. Yeah. That's so, so for you OS 9 fans, <laughs> I'm sure we got, you know, all, all three of you. <laughs> I was going to I was going to ask you how long it's been since you booted OS 9, but you said it was recently. I haven't booted into OS 9 or used OS 9 in probably more than two years. I, I had a need because when I was helping my mom migrate her machine. I needed to run a utility in OS 9. So I think I used Sheep Shaver. Yeah. And then you got to get the ROM file. And then there was some incompatibility with the ROM file versus the the version of OS yeah, Maybe eight and nine. I was trying. It, it just didn't quite come together. I mean, it, it it almost booted. I think at one point it did actually boot, but then it did an update and it it stopped working. But I think Sheep Shaver is is the way if you're going to try to do this. Uh, I don't know why you'd want to uh, to run OS nine again. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting, interesting. All right. Uh, so we have some quite a few pieces of feedback for our last uh, non premium show, which of course was show two eighty nine last week, and. One of the things we talked about was push uh, availability for Gmail and how it really didn't allow you to do push Gmail on the phone, on the iPhone. Well, we have uh, one, two solutions, both equally creative, but both completely different. Stephen writes, I thought I'd let you know about a way to get push notifications for Gmail on the iPhone. The free Google app will let you sign in with your Google or Google Apps account and will then give you push notifications when new mail comes in through the uh this is all through that iphone and ios notification process so and it totally works he's absolutely right uh so you know then you hit view and uh and you can go to mail and and see the uh see the message it's not downloading them at the moment that this is happening it's really two separate apps right mail app and the google apps or the google app are two separate things but uh but yeah it'll it, it totally works it'll let you know when you've got mail i still don't get why you'd want push mail but a lot of people do so I, I the last thing i i want 
is a notification every time an email comes in. But, uh, but, but for that, you got a BlackBerry, right? Oh man. I, Isn't that I all even, that those BlackBerry people do? I turned that off on my trio when I had it too. It, it drove me crazy. I get a lot of email though. So, I mean, it, maybe that's why, but maybe that I just couldn't, couldn't deal with it. So it was far too distracting, but there is another way to do it. And Chadwick, uh, we'll play Chadwick's comment here. And then we've got some links that we'll share from, uh, from the Borg on the same concept as, uh, as what Chadwick talks about. Hey, John and Dave, this is Chadwick from Columbus, Ohio. Just got through listening with uh, podcast 289. And I'm sure I'm probably not the only person who called in with this little, uh, tip or suggestion or idea, but, um, um, you just, I just, you talked about the gentleman who wanted to get Gmail to push to his iPhone. Um, I may be mistaken here, but I'm under the impression that you're correct, Dave, that if you set up Gmail using the normal Gmail um, way of doing it on your iPhone, you're not going to get push. However, you can, and when you set up a new account on your iPhone and you get that selection of, of the different, uh, you know, the different mail clients you can, or, uh, mail addresses you can use and there's like exchange and and uh mobile me and gmail and then it says other pop account or whatever if you choose ex- exchange and then set up your gmail through that then i believe it does push because that's also a way that you can set up your calendar through gmail to work with your iphone is by using an exchange server so if you select gmail there and set, set up your email you're not going to get push on your iphone but if you select exchange and then use Gmail's information, you're going to get it. All right. Uh, you guys have a great day and I will, we'll talk to you soon. Bye-bye. Thanks, Chadwick. Yep. And, uh, and there are some links at google.com that we will put in the show notes, uh, again, courtesy of the Borg to, uh, to let you know that there's some very descriptive how to's that they put together and, and good stuff like that. Uh, let's see. Uh, should we do David here, John, or should we just move on to Dave? Um, David has a good warning, I think. All right, good. Hey, John and Dave, this is David out in Boise, Idaho. I was just listening to Matt Geek Gap 289 and to the story about Chris and his uh, troubles with the Western Digital uh, 1.5 terabyte drive. I actually have a Western Digital 1, 1.0 terabyte drive external hooked up through Fire, FireWire. Um, and ran into the same issue, but it occurred right after I installed the Western Digital um, Device Manager as well as their Turbo Driver for the drives. Uh, I'm not sure if this necessarily played an issue in Chris's uh, situation, but I know in mine what I ended up having to do was go ahead and reformat the Time Machine backup because even in noticing the drive that was mounted on my Mac, uh, it had changed the icons to be the Western Digital uh, turbo driver instead of the default icon for the time machine backup drive. So, uh, hope this helps and don't get caught. <laughs> Thanks, David. <laughs> Thoughts on that, John? Yeah. Uh, finger. Well, no, not. A, um, I don't think I can't remember the last time, Dave, I purchased the drive either my desktop or my portable and installed anything that the vendor gave me. Yeah. Well, sometimes they'll send along some good backup software. I mean, that happens. I I will say yes. So if it's standalone, and and actually I have had that. So yeah, I had something I I was looking at um, for review, and it did come with backup software. So I'll leave it. But anything beyond backup software, like any sort of enhancer or something like that, I think, you know, this tells the story. It has the potential to alter the behavior of, of the thing or overrule the operating system. Right. So the, those make me uncomfortable, though. I got to admit, the last time I did install a WD drive on a PC I was using, I did use their software because it, it made the RAID management. Um, yeah, there was a reason to do it because it was on Windows and it would come up and basically do a, a you know, it would, t- it would tell you things about RAID that were important to you. Yep. So in that case, yep. but no, it's a good place to start. Um, I guess he noticed again because the, the icon changed. Right, right. All right. Uh, and then lastly, let's talk about uh, Dave has a comment and a question and perhaps an enhancement to when we were talking last week about Carl's question where he wanted to use multiple uh, 
the same IP address on both his Ethernet and his airport interface. Hey, guys, my name is Dave. I had a follow up to uh, episode 289. You guys were talking about Carl wanting the same IP on two different interfaces. Um, agree with what you guys said, and that's a good solution. Um, I just figured I'd throw out my two cents. I think kind of a better way to do it, maybe. Why not just set it from your router to uh, give it a static IP address? Um, I don't have an airport router, but I have a, a Linksys that I have DDWRT on. Um, but I think on most routers, you can set a static address. So basically, you just go into the router configuration, and you tell it for this MAC address, which would be for either the Ethernet or the Wi-Fi card, always give it the same IP. Um, I think the advantage of doing it that way, most of the time, especially where you get a laptop, I would think most people are, at some point in their life, going to be using their laptop on somebody else's Wi-Fi. So if you've gone in and manually set it to always have a static IP on the machine itself, like you guys explained, then when you get on somebody else's network, um, it might not work because they might have a different subnet or whatever. Um, so I think it'd just be a lot better way to do it from the router um, or use something like Marco Polo or whatever to change that stuff around. But um, try uh, try the static IP from the router. I know on DDWRT, you can actually set it to have more than one MAC address with the same, which now that you guys explained this, I think that's probably why you could do both your Ethernet and your Wi-Fi card to get the same IP. So anyways, uh, good tip and figured that might help add to it. And this is where you can cut me off. All right. Thanks, Dave. So you are absolutely right for one interface. Uh, and the reason is that if you do that DHCP reservation is what Apple calls it, or it's called other things. Like you said, you're using DDWRT, uh, other routers call it different things, but it's a, it's a reservation for your, uh, router to assign the same address to your computer every time that works great again for one ip for one interface and the reason is your router is smart enough to know that it should not have two entries in the table for the same ip address uh for a a reserved assignment i know ddwrt will stop you from doing this because i've tried i wanted to do exactly mm -hmm. what you were describing dave so what i decided to do was i figured well when i'm traveling more often than not i use my airport interface as the uh as the one to connect to other networks and the ethernet interface really in general, I only use it in the office. Sometimes there's times, you know, when I'm traveling where I'll have an Ethernet uh, port from the hotel room. But but otherwise, it's it's airport. So I do the DHCP manual uh, assignment on my Ethernet interface. And then I do the totally automatic, like you're describing here, Dave, on my airport interface. They do get the same IP address. Everything works very smoothly, but then when I travel, I get the benefits that, that Dave's talking about. So that that's the only caveat is you can't put two reservations in for the same IP address, um, in at least in no. any router I've tried. So I I tried it on on my uh, time capsule. You, and did it work? No, it it happily uh, when I typed in the address that I did want, yep. and then went to the next screen, it happily renumbered it to the next available. Oh, there you go. It's just like, what are you, stupid? Right. Well, yeah. <laughs> you already did dot one or dot two or whatever. So I'm going right. to do dot eight. So it just filled in the next one in line. So I started at two and I had up to seven defined. It just said, well, you probably meant that, right? That's right. <laughs> <laughs> All right, John. That, uh, I think that brings us to, uh, to wrap up time. Of course, before we wrap up, we need to tell everybody how you can all contact us. And the way to do that is, John, what's the first way? The first way? I don't know about the first way, but a way, Dave, is you could call us. Yes. And you'd pick up the phone and you'd dial 206-666-GEEK, which is 4335. And that's burned into my memory. It should be burned into yours. But in case it's not, or in case you want to email us, feedback at macgeekgab.com is the number to call. Wait, that's not a number. That's an email address. No, and the email is feedback at MacGeekGap.com. Yes, Dave. you said feedback at MacGeekGap.com and to feedback at MacGeekGap.com. You can send text, of course, screenshots, images, videos, audio files, 
In fact, many people do so from the Voice Memos app directly from their iPhones. They get nice quality audio to share with all of you here on the show, and it works really, really well. Uh, you can find the show notes prepared, excellently prepared, by our own John F. Braun uh, at MacGeekGab.com. And you can Skype us to MacGeekGab as well. Oh, what else? Twitter thing. I'm John F. Braun. Dave is Dave Hamilton. Pilopete is Pilopete. MacGeekGab is MacGeekGab. That's right. So that's news about the show. And, of course, Observer, if you want to know what's happening in the Mac world. World of Mac. Uh... John, we are traveling at the end of this week. We're heading out to Blog, Blog World Expo in Las Vegas. Uh, yep. Flying out Thursday, coming back Sunday. Uh, mm-hmm. Various events in the middle. I am speaking at, I believe, 12.15 p.m. on Friday the 15th with Gene McDonald of Smile, uh, formerly Smile on my Mac. We're talking about podcast advertising. Uh, so if mm. you are going to be out there, come on out and see the uh, session. Love to uh, have you out there. Hopefully we'll have time both to tell you some things and, of course, do a Q&A. So, uh, let's see. Uh, we Have Communicators is the podcast that Michael Johnston runs. We'd like to thank Michael for converting this to AAC for all of you. Cashfly.com provides all of the hosting, uh, rather, the uh, all of the bandwidth to get this from us to you. The podcast marketplace includes the A2 desktop speakers from Audio Engine, Yo, Jimbo from Barebone Software, PDF Pen from Smile, Notebook from Circus Ponies, and MacGeek is your coupon code for gazelle.com. And of course, Citrix, go to express.com slash geek. All through the Backbeat Media Podcast Network. John, anything to add before we're out of here? No, I think the next time you and I talk, uh, it's going to be in Vegas. Yeah, that's probably right. That's right. I'm looking forward to it. Short trip to Vegas is always a good thing. Yes. We're going to go see Cirque. We're going, John and I are going to see. Oh, yeah, Saturday? Uh, I think it's Friday. Viva Elvis. Should be a blast. One thing I'll say to you, John, while you're traveling don't get caught. Made up.